You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I think the little bit that's left of this evening is going to be devoted to Jim Houston, whose picture is on the wall standing there in front of a Mercedes that I don't think he owned. Um, But he's pretending he did. Jim, we're all fond of Jim. Jim was a great musician, uh, as was his father, uh, and uh, he played a great ukulele. And he had a few songs he would like to be here tonight to play with us, like um, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. But uh, the, the Granite Chief Quintet had... The, the, the personnel shifted a lot, but Jim and Al were both always in it. Um, so we're just, uh, this is um, Hey Good Looking, which is one of his favorites. got cooking how's about cooking something up with me hey sweet baby I don't mean baby we should be keeping steady company I'm gonna throw my date book over the fence buy me one for five or ten cents keep it until it's covered with age I'm gonna write your name on every page I got a hot rod Ford and a two dollar bill. 
I know a place that's over the hill. There's soda pop and the dance is free. If you want a good time, come along with me. Hey, good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking something up? How about cooking something up? We could be cooking something up. Thank you. That goes out to Jeannie and her daughters. This is the prologue to Continental Drift. From high above, say gazing down from one of our tracking satellites, he can see it plain as an incision, a 600-mile incision some careless surgeon stitched up across the surface of the Earth. It marks the time where two great slabs of the Earth's crust meet and grind together. Most of North America occupies one of these slabs. Most of the Pacific Ocean floats on the other. A small lip of the Pacific slab extends above the surface along America's western coastline, a lush and mountainous belt of land, not as much a part of the rest of the continent as it is the most visible piece of that slab of crust which lies submerged. The line where these two slabs or plates meet is called the San Andreas Fault. It cuts south from San Francisco, past San Jose, underneath the old San Juan Batista mission, on down behind Los Angeles and back underwater again at the Gulf of California. The Pacific Plate, he will tell you, is creeping north and west at about two inches a year, an example of the movement geologists call continental drift. Our globe, which appears to be divided into continents and bodies of water, is actually a patchwork of these vast plates all floating around on a kind of subterranean pudding. What it resembles most is a badly fractured skull. From time to time, the towns and cities along the fault line have been jiggled or jolted by temblers large and small when sections of it buckle or lock and then unbend, release, or settle. There are people who predict that one day the ultimate quake is going to send a huge chunk of California sliding into the ocean like Atlantis. They foresee this as one of the worst disasters in the history of the civilized world. They sometimes add that in a land as bizarre and corrupt as California is reputed to be, such a fate has been well earned. Montrose Doyle will tell you that's poppycock, both the physics and the prophecy. He'll tell you that the Earth's crust is 300 miles thick, whereas the fault line only cuts down for 30 of those miles. He'll tell you that if anything is going to undo this piece of coast, it will be the accumulated body weight of all the people who have been moving into his part of the world at a steady rate since 1849. But it won't be the San Andreas. He's made it his business to find out what he can about this creature because he owns 55 acres of orchard and grazing land that borders it. He grew up on this ranch, will probably die here, and during his 46 years he has seldom felt more than a tick across the earth's skin an infrequent shiver in the high cupola which serves as his personal antenna and seismograph. 
Montrose has studied with fascination the photographs of rotundas upended in the streets of San Francisco during the famous quake of 1906. He has corresponded with experts, and he has escorted visitors over to Hollister, 25 miles east of where his own house stands. An otherwise neat and orderly farm town, Hollister happens to be gradually splitting in two because it sits in the fracture zone, like an Eskimo village caught on a cracking ice flow. By following cracks, you can trace the subtle power of the fault as it angles under the town, offsetting sidewalks and curbstones and gutters, an effect most alarming in the house of a chiropractor, which you pass soon after entering Hollister from the west. One half of a low concrete retaining wall holding back the chiropractor's lawn has been carried north and west about eight inches. The concrete walkway is buckling. Both porch pillars lean precariously toward the coast. In back, the wall of his garage is bent into a curve like a stack of whale's ribs. The fact that half his domed house, doomed house rides on the American plate and the other half rides the Pacific has not discouraged this chiropractor from maintaining a little order in his life. He hangs his sign out front, he keeps his lawn well mowed, and the old house brightly, spotlessly painted. One afternoon, Montrose leaned down to talk with a fellow in Hollister who was working on the transmission of a Chevy pickup. The curb his truck stood next to has been shattered by the ageless tension of those two slabs of earth crust pulling at each other. Five inches had opened in the curb like a little wound and someone had tried to fill it with homemade concrete and that had started to split. Monty said, hey. The grease-smeared face emerged irritably. It was hot. The man said, yeah. Hey, doesn't the fault run through this part of town? The what? The San Andreas, oh, that damn thing? The man waved his wrench aimlessly. Yeah, she's around here somewhere and he slid back out of sight underneath his pickup. Montrose regards that man with fondness now. He voiced Monty's own attitude pretty well, which is to say, none of this really troubles him much. Is he a fatalist? Yes and no. He anticipates, yet he does not anticipate. What he loves to dwell on, what he savors so much during those trips to Hollister is that steady creep, which a few million years hence will put his branch on a latitude with Juneau, Alaska. He admires the foresight of the Spanish cartographers who in their earliest maps pictured California as an island. Sometimes late at night, after he's been drinking heavily, he'll hike out to his fence line and imagine that he can feel beneath his feet the dragging of the continental plates and imagine that he's standing on his own private raft, a new world Noah heading north at two inches per year. Most of the time he doesn't think about it at all. It's simply there, a presence beneath his land. If it ever comes to mind during his waking hours, he thinks, thinks of it as just that, a presence, a force. You might even say a certainty, the one thing he knows he can count on, this relentless grinding of two great slabs which have been budding head-on now for millennia and are not about to relax. At the end of Continental Drift, Jim's prose become poetry. If we begin in stone, we must return to stone, not dead matter, but the ageless moving stuff of earth, which Grover calls the moving circle. The floodwaters rise, each island is smaller, yet we find them, we search together, and we find them in those few moments we have above the flood or below the, the juices in our veins run young again. Our eyes are pagan. 
within this ring, we find such simple things. I do thee wed, shed old bodies we have known so long, find new flesh up there, take thee as my woman once again, down here among the wet ancestral stones, our eyes full of light, our new bodies meeting. In this clean water, we close once again the moving ring. What a thing it is to be a friend, mentor, and teacher. Jim and Jeannie Wakatsuki Houston are that to millions through a farewell to Manzanar. Taught, performed, assigned in schools, shining a light on history, and teaching so many of us by example how to be human citizens for peace and justice in our difficult republic. So from a true American classic. Our, twin, our twins were five years old at the time, a boy and a girl. Our older daughter had just turned 11. She knew about the evacuation, but it would be a few more years before she absorbed this part of the family history. For these three, the site had been like any wreck or ruin. They became explorers, rushed around, hoping the next clump of dusty trees or chunk of wall might reveal the treasure, the trinket, the exotically rusted hinge. Nothing much had turned up. The shine was wearing off the trip. Their eyes were red and their faces badly chapped. No place for kids. My husband started walking them back to the car. I stayed behind a moment longer, first watching our 11-year-old stride ahead, leading her brother and sister. She has long, dark hair like mine and was then the same age I had been when the camp closed. It was so simple watching her to see why everything that had happened to me since we left camp referred back to it in one way or another. At that age, your body is changing, your imagination is galloping, your mind is in that zone between a child's vision and an adult's. Papa's life ended at Manzanar, though he lived for 12 more years after getting out. Until this trip, I had not been able to admit that my own life really began there. The times I thought I had dreamed it were one way of getting rid of it, part of wanting to lose it, part of what you might call a whole Manzanar mentality I had lived with for 25 years. Much more than a remembered place, it had become a state of mind. Now, having seen it, I no longer wanted to lose it or have those years erased. Having found it, I could say what you can only say when you've truly come to know a place. Farewell. I had nearly outgrown the shame and the guilt and the sense of unworthiness. This visit, this pilgrimage, made comprehensible, finally, the traces that remained and would always remain like a needle. That hollow ache I carried during the early months of internment had shrunk over the years to a tiny sliver of suspicion about the very person I was. It had grown so small sometimes I'd forget it was there. Months might pass before something would remind me. When I first read in the summer of 1972 about the pressure Japan's economy was putting on American business and how a union in New York City had printed up posters of an American flag with 
made in Japan written across it. Then the needle began to jab. I heard Mama's soft, weary voice from 1945 say, it's all starting over. I knew it wouldn't, yet neither would I have been surprised to find the FBI at my door again. I would resist it much more than my parents did, but deep within me, something had been prepared for that. Manzanar would always live in my nervous system, a needle with Mama's voice. We love you, Jeannie. This is the end of Jem's book, Californians Searching for the Golden State. You would have to be made of stone not to harbor some powerful feeling for whatever place on earth has left its imprint in your eyes and ears and nerve ends, especially on such a day as this, in the crisp, sunny air of early autumn. Summer light is buttery here. Autumn brings a harder edge to the sheets of glare. The air begins to bite as the sun falls. The sky presses closer to each distant object, tightening all the curves and corners. To the right is the ocean, to the left the Salinas River Delta, which has no profile, so that from here it seems to be a broad channel between the Gabalon Range and the Santa Lucias, which rise beyond Monterey. The peninsula looks detached. Below the peaks, a fog bank is hovering like low clouds around an island. This view, with its layers of coastal history, is layered yet again, silvered with glare, and it can still make the eyes glisten and the spirit sail, make you yearn to save whatever can be saved and stir to life the dream that brought you here or brought your parents or grandparents here. At this altitude, if you squint a little and edit out the PG&E smokestacks at the Moss Landing power plant, down there along the inside curve, you can still see this bay as Vizcaino might have seen it, or as it was seen by the Indians before him, who looked at the endless stands of pine and redwood and at the open sea ahead and told themselves they were dancing on the brink of the world. Tick a tick a tick a good timing. Uh, Jim had a, another side uh, <clears throat> that wasn't uh, expressed uh, very much uh, in writers' conference context. Writers' conferences are all about, you know, celebrity and wannabes and money and contracts and submissions and editors and <laughs> acceptances and all of that sort of thing as if we're not living in a terrible, terrible time. Jim was very aware of this. We talked about it often uh, privately, and he wrote quite a bit about it. He wrote the piece that I'm about to uh, read originally, uh, submitting it to my website in 2003. It was hot off of his uh, typewriter. Jim still used an IBM Selectric, I should tell you, and he would later have it uh, scanned. He never really did get with uh, computer composing. 
And uh, many decades before, in the 1960s, I ran a magazine called uh, Love Letter, edited and published uh, Underground Magazine. And he wrote a piece that's kind of a companion piece to this called The Fifth Day Kennedy Was Shot. It was uh, written in the wake of uh, the uh, Kennedy assassination. Watching Baghdad burn, keeping up with the war via MSNBC, James D. Houston. It is the first day of spring, 2003, and Baghdad is burning. The Defense Department calls it shock and awe. You deliver so many bombs, stir up so much flame and mayhem, the leaders of the other side realize there's nothing else to do but quit. That is the operational theory. So, here they come. 320 cruise missiles dropped through the night sky into a stretch of six kilometers along the Tigris River. And right there next to the spectacle on the screen, just underneath the billowing explosions, the smoke and the fire, the Dow Jones industrial averages are ticking away, steadily climbing as the devastation spreads. This is the preemptive strike Kofi Annan and numerous other leaders around the world say is a violation of international law. This is the military invasion of a country that has yet to do anything to us. Though the polls say nearly half the people in the U.S. believe Saddam Hussein was behind the 9-1-1 attack on the World Trade Center, no one has produced any evidence to support that belief. Our own CIA refutes it. There's no question that Saddam has been a brutal dictator, a fact that didn't bother us until he crossed the wrong border. Until 1991, he was our dictator. No question that he is a deceptive scoundrel who has ruled by fear and ruthless intimidation. But what kind of solution is this? The most expensive and sophisticated military machine ever assembled on the planet Earth is being aimed at a country slightly larger than California and where half the population is under 15 years of age. Whose brutality is being revealed here today? Whose weapons of mass destruction are on display? And why, as the companion track to these hellish scenes, do the Dow Jones averages continue to click along down there in the lower right-hand corner of the screen? While it's near midnight in Baghdad, it's midnight on Friday here in the U.S., so the market is still open. But on a day like this, given what we're watching, given the many frightful implications of these flames rising from an Arab city of some five million people, I can think of several other types of data that the network news might offer to viewers as a running sidebar of relevant information. Weather forecasts from the neighboring regions of the Middle East could be very handy, or the ongoing numbers of casualties as they occur, civilian as well as military, Iraqi as well as British and American, or the sites of protests being mounted around the world in Rome and Cairo and Beirut and London and Jakarta and San Francisco with a running scroll that estimates the numbers of protesters globally at any given moment, the numbers of arrests, the numbers of police in riot gear who have been called away from other duties to deal with the surging multitudes, 
or some names and numbers for agencies one might contact if you wanted to do something on behalf of the people whose city is being bombed. But numbers like these will appear infrequently and be less specific. We're not supposed to dwell on them too long. The screen tells us that of all the numbers hovering around the wreckage, the ones we want to watch first are found in the moment-to-moment -moment tracking of the Dow, and there is no mystery about why. Take those 320 cruise missiles. They will have to be replaced. At $1 million each, that's a $320 million contract for Raytheon, right there in the first night's bombing. Consider the destruction done by these missiles and the buildings, roads, and sewer lines that will have to be restored. In the first big Wall Street rally after President Bush announced that Saddam had 48 hours to ab abdicate, one of the fastest gaining stocks was Caterpillar, whose bulldozers and backhoes are sure to be in great demand. Halliburton is already on the ground in Kuwait, in Turkey, and in Afghanistan via its engineering subsidiary, Brown and Root. In November 2001, they secured a 10-year mega deal with the Pentagon to provide logistic support to military operations for a profit anywhere in the world. Brown and Root already has a Pentagon contract to control oil fires wherever Iraqis, I'm sorry, wherever Iraq's wellheads are set ablaze. Somebody has to do that kind of work, of course. Still, one can't help but wonder if there were other candidates for these tasks besides a subsidiary of the corporation Dick Cheney ran before he became vice president and from whom he continues to receive each year a healthy chunk of delayed severance pay. Our bombs blacken the sky over Baghdad while in the corner of the screen, the numbers keep rolling like lemons and cherries, turning on their rollers in a slot machine. These two tracks play together, charting the progress of an infamous day, the relentless rain of weaponry, the billowing smoke, the fires reflected in the waters of the Tigris, the shock and awe side by side with NASDAQ, the S&P 500, Somewhere off screen, the casualty rate is already beginning its climb, but we don't see that yet. The screen reminds us to keep our eyes on the fortunes of the Dow, up 235 points when the market closes to cap the biggest one-week gain in 20 years. There's a line in Snow Mountain Passage that describes what I think uh, many of us felt when we learned of Jim's death. But before you knew what happened, something you imagined would always be there was simply gone. Gone, yes, but not gone. This next short passage is in the voice of Patty Reed, whose father, also named Jim, has been exiled from the Donner Party and has gone ahead alone. Here the rest of the party uh, comes to the place, uh, to a place where he has camped before them. <clears throat> there were the markings of the fire he had built, and scattered around it were the loose feathers of a bird he must have shot the next morning. Mama said we would build our family fire on the same spot, as if the place held some of his spirit, 
or perhaps by making a fire there, we would send our blessing forward to travel with him. <clears throat> Tonight, we too are making our fire on the same spot in this place that holds so much of Jim's <clears throat> spirit. Uh, this is from the penultimate paragraph of Snow Mountain Passage. <clears throat> I think of Mama and Papa buried in San Jose and Grandma buried in Kansas beside the emigrant, emigrant trail and the generations of my forebears buried here and there across the land, Illinois, Virginia, North Carolina, as well as overseas in Ireland and Scotland and Poland and who knows where else. For a century, my people moved, and I have stayed put longer than most. Still a newcomer, of course, compared with those who used to live around the borders of this lagoon taking shellfish from these beaches. Yet 75 years is long enough to feel connected to a place. The way a plant will suck up water from the soil to quench its own thirst. We nomad humans suck up something from wherever we decide to stop, and it feeds us. It feeds us as this place does, as Jim does still. Well, I'm really honored to have been asked to read Jim's work tonight. Um, I'm also reading for two people who really wanted to be here tonight, Ann Close and B.J. Robbins. Um, they both had a lot to do with Jim's last two books, and they both really, really wanted to be here. Anne called me and uh, told me what to read, as a good editor would do. And she wrote this. Jim was as gracious and hardworking and talented as an author as he was in every other part of his life. It was my great luck and pleasure to be the editor of his last two novels, Snow Mountain Passage and Bird of Another Heaven. So I'm going to read three, chap uh, three uh, paragraphs from the middle, sorry, <laughs> gave you a little fright there, didn't I? <laughs> I'm going to read three long chapters. Jim would like it. From uh, Bird of Another Heaven, which was Jim's 16th book, I believe, and as far as I know, his best. He was still getting better, which is one reason it's so disappointing he's not going to be writing anymore. Um, this is the story of the end of the monarchy in Hawaii, and in the scene I'm going to read, um, the young girl Nani who is our narrator's grandmother, is being presented to perform the hula for the first time for the last king of Hawaii, David Kalakaua. Nani, in the middle row, tried to contain her fear of dancing before such a multitude. At the rancheria, she danced in nighttime ceremonies in the festivals each spring and fall, but in those times, everyone danced. No one sat and watched. You didn't have to think about so many eyes upon you. She tried to think of nothing but the move she had to make. Your back is like a tree, Moana told them, growing straight up from the earth. Nani had learned to become the tree, the mountain, the wave, the rainbow, the storm, and the lover too, since their dances were sometimes stories of men pursuing women, women pursuing men, stories of new love or stolen love. This song, this melee, she had heard Moana say, is about waves lapping softly on the sand. It is about the sound of the waves and the beauty of the water. It is also about a woman caressing the body of a man she desires. The beach is his body, 
the waves are her hands. When the big wave rises and moves toward the shore, that is the strong feeling of desire rising up inside. Then it breaks in the spray and white foam, the ehukai, that is the moment of love. In this way, Nani had learned to be the wave and also to make it swell a kind of invitation with the hips and a supple turning of the hands. As her body told these stories, sometimes body tales, sometimes old dramas of the fire goddess and her sister, the keeper of the forest, she was inside the dance, losing her fear in a trance-like unfettered flow that was not lost upon the king. From his mat, where he sat cross-legged, sipping brandy, nibbling on roast pig, he watched with the close scrutiny and intense pleasure of the connoisseur, proud of what his trusted friend Moana had accomplished, captivated by his young cousin, her talent, her subtlety of gesture, by how much she'd learned, and moved by that which couldn't be learned, yet was somehow released in the dancing. Well, I am honored to tell you that I was married by Jim Houston. I met Jim uh, 21 summers ago here at Squaw, and a few days later, dinner was at the top of the mountain. And Jim and my then beau, and now husband Tom Jenks and I, decided we'd get a little exercise by climbing the mountain. Jim carried the backpack, we had a bottle of water and a larger bottle of tequila. <laughs> it took a long time. We kept stopping and telling stories and taking a nip. And at a point, we decided that we would speak in the dialects of our ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> For Jim, that was the Ozark Mountains. For Tom, that was Texas. And I did a little Armenian accent with a little Stockholm in the middle of it. And when we got to the top of the mountain, we had just renamed ourselves Brother Jim, Brother Tom, and Sister Carol. And so it seemed right that when we moved into our first house, Brother Jim came to bless it. Uh, with a Hawaiian blessing, Hono Pono Pono. And when we married, Brother Jim came and wearing a white suit, and Jeannie had a great hat. And it was a very unconventional wedding, but at the end, Jim read from 1 Corinthians, and he said, love never ends, but services do and he rang a cowbell. <laughs> There's a broadside that Jim gave us um, that hangs outside our youngest girl's room. It's from Tides of Fire. When I was a kid, I never understood why stars are pictured with five sharp points or six points or eight. Whenever I looked into the sky, I saw dots of light. That was all, a thousand tiny dots. Then I would look down and see a starfish, and I could never figure out the connection. Stars in the skies were one thing, stars on Earth were something else. 
I didn't really think this through until after I got hit and the vision in my left eye started changing, losing some of the sharpness. One night, I can't remember exactly when it was, I happened to look in the sky and notice these thin lines flaring from the dots. If I closed my right eye, the lines grew longer and actually began to sparkle at the tips. That's when I saw where the points on the stars had come from. Thousands of years ago, some old warrior who'd been blinded on the battlefield, or maybe he was a professional sky gazer whose eyes were going, this revered senior citizen of a long gone era drew a few pictures of what his worn down retina had processed. Since he was regarded as a sage or seer, others were soon persuaded that those little things in the distant sky looked more or less like what he was claimed he was seeing. In this way, we have inherited a lot of imagery that doesn't tell us much at all about stars. By which I mean not only the starfish and star apple, but star, the star of Bethlehem and the star of David and the stars in the sidewalks on Hollywood Boulevard and the 50 white ones in the stars and stripes. If I had not taken that tiny piece of shrapnel, I might ne never have figured this out. Now I can have it both ways. I can close my left eye and see dots of light. I can close my right eye and see flags and uniforms and Christmas cards in the coal black sky. Um, I'm going to read from Jim's last book, Where Light Takes Its Color from the Sea. But um, it wasn't really his last beautiful book. It is a lasting book, uh, as all his generous words to us are. This is, uh, he's speaking of his father. In one of my earliest memories, he is down on his knees in front of the radio. We had one of those old time radios made of dark carved wood with a curving top and cloth over the speaker, a piece of furniture large enough to dominate the room. Set against a wall by itself, it had a strangely compelling presence. When three or four of us were gathered in front of it, gazing at the speaker and listening to one of the evening programs, One Man's Family, or Suspense, you might think it was an altar to the deities of sound. Kneeling there alone on a weekend afternoon, he would hold his ear up close to the cloth and fool with the dials, trying to bring in a show known as Hawaii Calls that used to be broadcast live from a lanai of the Moana Hotel. This was when the cast, this was when the Moana and the Royal Hawaiian were the only two hotels in Waikiki. The MC was Webley Edwards, and he would always find a way to remind you of the climate you were missing out on. With the mic down close to the shore lapping surf, he would say seductively, the temperature of the air here at Waikiki is 76. Temperature of the water is 74. The musical director was Al Kialoa Perry. Sometimes Lena Mikado would sing known as Hawaii's songbird and sometimes the great falsetto artist, George Kainapau. When father would wait all week for this, 
Some Saturdays, the shortwave signal would be so faint, it was nothing more than a thin and lonesome trickle struggling to make it across 2,400 miles of open water. Every once in a while, if the weather was right, you could hear the songs and the voices loud and clear, the ukes, the rhythm guitars, and somewhere behind the music, the lapping surf. Then my father would set back on his heels and listen reverently. That is what I remember. Anything that brings your father to his knees is going to make an impression on you. And this was what could do it. The sound or the very hope of hearing the sound of Hawaii calls. Thank you, Jim. About 35 years ago, I was as uh, marginally a published writer as a person could be and claimed to be published. I think I had one or two stories published. And I received a postcard uh, in the mail from someone named James D. Houston saying he'd read a story of mine and that, that I had captured something of the redneck South that both of our families shared. I took that as a compliment. Um, and then he sent me almost immediately thereafter a copy of three songs from my father um, about 25 years later, he, he, he had, Jim had developed the habit of stopping at our house when he was in Sonoma County so we could have lunch and have dinner. And I had lost this book. I found it, and I realized he had not signed it. So I took it to the lunch table where we were imbibing, and, and uh, I said, hey, Jim, you want to sign this for me? He said, that's a collector's item. I'll give you $10 for it. <laughs> I said, listen, I would sell it for five, except it was given to me by a dear friend, melted his heart. And so he wrote, <coughs> excuse me, to Jerry, <coughs> excuse me, to Jerry and Jan, since you won't sell me this rare document, I'll have to inscribe it in the spirit of families who brought us to this western shore. When I opened the document the first time, this rare document, I read this opening sentence, and I became a lifelong fan. At the county dump, I am throwing away my father. His old paint rags and stumps of brushes. Ragtag bits of this and that he touched, stacked, stored, useless to anyone but him. And he's gone now. So toss it all out there among the refrigerators and lettuce leaves and 700 truck tires, busted sofas, flower pots, and grass from overgrown gardens of every household. Into it I throw my father, saving for last that suitcase of his, first seen 20 years back, and old then. The first day he took me out on a job, a pair of his spattered overalls to wear, rolled thick at the cuff, and Sherwin-Williams white fiddle cap and us, too, squatting as he unbuckles the case and touches dark labels and pigment tubes, deciding something. Crusted with splats of 70 colors now, lid corners split as if somebody sat on it. The ragged straps dangle. One shred of leather holds a chromium buckle 
yet the buckle itself hasn't worn much at all. Still catches the sun where paint doesn't cover it. Relic from those days before things tarnished in a week. One last glance. By five tonight, it'll be gone for good when the bulldozer comes around to shove it over the side with the rest of today's arms and toes and parts of hearts. What are you going to do, Dad? He doesn't answer. He never answers. Jim would understand that eventually we all go over the side. But none of us can shove him over without shoving chunks of our hearts. And then we'd have, <clears throat> excuse me, then we'd have to grasp for Jim's own unfailingly generous heart. That great heart we'll never forget. Thank you. Thank you all. It was a wonderful evening. Thank you for being a part of it. We love you. We love you, Jim. We love you, Oakley. Goodbye. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>